time has come to retool our play for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. It's Tracy Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast, The Future of Strings. And this is where we talk about progressive string playing, you know, jazz, rock, all the cool stuff that you didn't learn at music school. And we speak with the progressive string players who are defining what it means to be a progressive string player in the 21st century. And I'm so honored and grateful that we have the great Regina Carter here on the show today, a winner of all kinds of accolades and awards, and has been a major player in the jazz string world since her very first record came out in 95. And I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. I'm going to start with, I think, one of the most impressive parts of her bio, and that is that she started out as a public school string teacher in Detroit. Yes, that was how she started. Actually, she started at the age of four with Suzuki uh, from the town of Detroit, part of the string trio of New York later on for many years. Uh, went to, uh, I believe you went to the um, New England Conservatory. Is that, is that right? Yes, NEC for two years, yeah. <laughs> NEC for two years. We're going to talk about that in, in a minute. Um, she's got over a dozen solo albums under her own name uh, and has been a guest artist on just innumerable albums by many world-renowned jazz artists, several of which were Grammy-nominated. Uh, and she's wor worked with people like John Batiste, uh, Eddie Palmieri, Kenny Barron, a wonderful record that she did with, with Kenny, uh, Anthony Davis, Cassandra Wilson, Danilo Perez, the Soldier String Quartet, which you have a, a long history with, I think, uh, toured and recorded with Wynton Marsalis, um, and of course with her cousin James Carter. Uh, and, by the way, her husband is the drummer in her band, which is also super cool and something which I also have huge respect for because that's not as easy as it sounds sometimes. She is a 2003 NEA Jazz Masters Honor winner at multi-Grammy nominee, as I mentioned, a Doris Duke Award winner, and of course, MacArthur Genius Grant Fellow, which is just huge. Um, so we're we're talking today with one of the brightest stars in the jazz firmament, not just the jazz string world. So um, so this is really an honor. Uh, Regina teaches at the Manhattan School of Music and uh, has a recent album out called Swing States: Harmony in the Battleground. And and I think that's a good place to start. I'd like to 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 ask you a little bit about that because what a cool idea. First of all, the title. 
so cool for somebody who plays swing music and has a political point of view, um, which, you know, it doesn't hurt that I happen to agree with, but uh, it's also just wonderful to be <laughs> to be bridging um, that world and talking about those swing states. And and uh, it's a great concept to take tunes from those particular states that are everybody's talking about, like Florida and Wisconsin and Michigan and stuff like that. Which track on that record are you are are you most proud of? Would you say? And I'm sure you're proud of all of them for different reasons. But yeah, I you know, what what track am I most proud of? I'm I I wouldn't necessarily use the word proud. I think okay. I I just um, first of all, uh, trumpeter, great trumpeter, composer, arranger, John Diversa uh, wrote all the arrangements for the swing states, Battle in the Har Harmony in the Battleground. Although it's feeling more like a battle, <laughs> a battle now these <laughs> yes. days. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate the idea of harmony. <laughs> It's not easy yeah. to find. It's a little more like out jazz these days. Right. You know? yeah, <laughs> free, it's right. in a free jazz world in the swing states. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I I really loved each each arrangement was so completely different and uh, unique and 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 just had it. I'd have to say probably my favorite. Uh, was um, Dancing in the Streets, which was for Detroit, because that was the civil rights. I was wondering about that. That became a civil rights uh, uh, yes. tune in, back in the 60s. But just his, just John's um, approach to arranging that tune was so complete. Like, I couldn't even, I, I, I couldn't even guess what he was going to do with that. And the, huh. what he came up with was so incredibly beautiful so different so so fresh uh so i really i really enjoyed that tune but all of them like i said it was fun to play on all of them They're kind of little yeah. twists and turns here and there sound is so uh it's kind of up front it's it's strong it's bold um it's like a horn player you know it's got a little bit of that trumpet kind of um power to it uh and i'm curious what kind of instrument you're using what, you know what's giving you that sound uh it's not a pedigree violin that's for sure it's it doesn't yeah, have to no. be, yeah uh you know it's a german trade violin it it it, all the parts have been replaced on it. I bought it um, 
from a, a shop years ago uh, in New York uh, from Ron Fletcher. And a um, funny story with that was there was a gentleman in his shop at the time and I was trying out different instruments and then he played one. He said, I think this one, but let me play them for you. And this gentleman played the violins for me so I could hear and I chose this violin. And several years later, um, a good friend of, of mine and mutual friend, Sam Bardfeld, was study was studying with this with a teacher and I said, you know, do you mind if I, I get his information? So I went by Sam one of Sam's lessons. And I met this gentleman, Gerald Bill was his name. And he said, you don't remember me, but I was in this violin shop and I played the violins for you when you bought it. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, it just, you know, I, I I like violins with more of a dark, dark voice, like a viola voice. Yep. Um, and I always just move, have the, the luthier move things around on it to try to get the sound even darker. Um, change the strings sometimes leave them on their way too long because it gets a different sound yeah that i like you know yeah um so yeah yeah yeah. interesting interesting i like that concept of of leaving the old strings because they they don't have that zizzy kind of brightness yeah i can't i hate the, the bright and it's oh my god and especially the e string yeah I just, when I put a new E string on, it just drives me nuts. <laughs> right there, the FO right by your ear. Yep, yep, yep. What are you, and just to, not to get too far into the weeds, but um, do you ever put a pickup on or are you always playing into a mic? I used to use a pickup years ago. Um, you know, when I first got into playing jazz, I was a big Jean-Luc Ponty head. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I, everything he had, I'd check out what's he got. And I, I remember I got the blue violin, the Barkus Berry, like he had back then. And I had an Echoplex, um, uh, what was it called? Effectron, I think it was, where you could, you know, and then the thing that you could get the octave above and below and. Yeah. Octatron, I don't know what it was. Anyway, so I had all of that. So I used to play with the electronics. And then after a while, I just went with a uh, pickup on the violin. I've tried several different pickups. And then I started using a mic, just a mic overhead. I don't even know how many years ago, because I I find that um, as I mature, (laughs) I don't, I, I, I like the band to be very close together in proximity. And I like the volume to be low. I like the, 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 I saw Richard Bona once. I heard him at a club here in New York and it was an electric band, but the, you had to lean forward to like, to listen, to hear. And I thought, man, that's, that's genius because people aren't going to talk so much. I started doing that, but using the overhead mic, I felt like it gave, it, it gave room for the sound of the violin to travel, to get to the mic. And I don't use, I, I don't use a monitor because for me it's very strange i hear it through the uphole so right. to have the sound of the violin coming from somewhere else it's very strange for me and if you don't have if the venue doesn't have great um equipment or you have someone that's not that doesn't really understand mixing a string instrument it right. could be horrible and yeah. that oh, yeah. alone 
you yeah, know, yeah. it's not a good. It just goes right through, right yes. through my sternum, and, and very agitated at that sound. Yeah, no, it's a hard. I know what you mean, and and having that overhead mic. Um, first of all, you know, you you can't really use a monitor with that mic because it can feed back easily. But also, it means that the band has really got to keep it down because otherwise you're going to get drums all over it and uh, so it, it kind of enforces everybody to just kind of relax a little bit and yeah yeah and 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 there's sometimes where the band won't use mono i mean they'll have it there for safety's sake but they won't even use yeah. it because we're so close together we can hear each other it just depends you know as you know, every hall is different. The acoustics are different. So yeah, well, that's very cool. Yeah, cool. I mean, you... yeah, and I I stand right in front of the drummer, so wow. <laughs> and there's never a problem. That's awesome. <laughs> well, you know, it's your husband, so you... yeah. He listen. He got he 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 got his training with Betty Carter okay. and uh, 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 Abby Lincoln, so I didn't have to worry. Yeah, <laughs> Alvester, it, he he was used to working with with the vocalist and and. Having those two as his first yeah. band leaders, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And there's there's just a quality of playing acoustically in a small space, or you know, even in a big space, but exactly. just close together. That just it's so different from the experience. I mean, I spent and still do spend a lot of time, you know, with electronics and amps and speakers and pickups and all that, and it. As much as I enjoy doing that, there's nothing like the intimacy of just hearing people with your, you know, without having earbuds and whatever, you know, monitors. You can just hear them and you can hear all these subtleties and the dynamics that can happen between you are the same dynamics that happen in a room when you're having a conversation, you know. People's voices come up and people's voices go down and you just, it's very natural and organic. And your recorded sound has always been acoustic sounding to me. It's, I, I've never uh, really noticed a pickup sound. If you were using one for recording, it was a good one. So. Well, thank you. In the beginning, I think, I'm trying to remember in those recordings, I don't, I don't know if I used a pickup. Um, I can't remember like my very first records maybe but yeah. I think always since yeah usually it's a microphone and, and since my first records on Verve at least when I would start recording with them Joe Furla was the engineer and we were definitely doing my only microphones and we he'd take time to like figure out which mics sounded best on the violin depending on the studio yeah. um and we sometimes we go into the studio way before we were going to record and just try some different mics, mic placements as well. Yeah. Do you have a favorite mic that you, seems to just marry well with your instrument? Um, for live performance, um, I use, what is it, the, I think it's KM-147, I have to look at it until I think KM-147. 87 or 147 180 yeah something yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no worries it's a microphone it it's works. a microphone <laughs> damn it and it sounds good it's all you need but, to know you know my and i i should know this because why carry my mic with me you know well that's why yes i figured yeah. you have your mic you know yeah and then you know and and my husband is is an audiophile and a tech geek so oh good yeah cool so 
slightly different subject here. Um, you, like, like me, started out as a classical player. You came up with Suzuki. Uh, and I want to talk about that in a minute and the whole playing by ear stuff. But you went to NEC, which is uh, has a jazz department, but is also a very well-known conservatory, classical conservatory. And then after two years, you left and really kind of, you, you came back to Detroit and really started a jazz career after two years of a conservatory. And it sounds like there's a story there. Uh, I'm just kind of curious how that how that came about. My story. Let's see. Well, yeah, I went to NEC uh, for two years. I New England Conservatory of Music. I, um, I, I auditioned both for the classical and the the jazz department, and, and I got in both. But the the classical people were like, <laughs> at my audition, they were like, "Well, which music? Which one do you prefer to do?" And I tap danced around that answer. Um, but. New England at the time didn't have a campus. There were just two buildings across one. The practice rooms where you had your classes were directly across from the dorms. And I remember I convinced my uh, one of my best friend, Carla Cook, who's a wonderful jazz vocalist, also from Detroit. I convinced her to go to school in Boston. She went to Northeastern. And sometimes she walked down that street, Gainsborough, and she say, "It sounds like an insane asylum here, because you'd hear all these people hanging out their windows practicing right across from the dorms." And uh, yeah, when I had my dorm on that side, my second year it was pretty intense. But um, <laughs> you know, so there was no campus; you were just in the city, and it was my first time uh, being away from home. In Boston, I I experienced my I had my first experiences with racism no in Boston when I was there and they were pretty ugly um, and it just I hated the city I hated it hmm. um, and so after my second year there my mother she allowed me to come home because wow. she just okay. it was it got pretty pretty bad for me um, so I came home and well my second year there I switched my major to to jazz unbeknownst to her because my mother was not having the whole jazz thing <laughs> similar to my parents a little bit of that yeah you know and so uh, I came home and I went to Oakland University in um, Rochester Michigan about a half an hour um, north of, of Detroit and I went to the jazz band director there, Doc Marvin Holiday, and just said, you know, I said, I want to play jazz. I want to, and he didn't even think twice. He put me in the nice. alto saxophone section and I transposed the alto parts. And he was the one that told me then, cause I was of course, you know, a violin nerd, any jazz violinist. And he said, don't listen to jazz violinists because there are too few of them out there you want to develop your own voice, so start listening to other instruments and vocalists, which was such great, great advice. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it, it really brings brings to, to the fore the fact that, you know, here you are, a string player in the jazz world, which is, over, you know, being an outsider, and being a person of color in the classical world, which is also, unfortunately, being an outsider, even to this day, uh, and that's a lot of that's a that's a tough tough road and a lot of obstacles uh, in your path 
uh, and yet it uh, none of that seemed to to slow you down. Um, you you found your path. You found exactly what you were supposed to do, and uh, you know found the people who were going to help you, like um, Doc Holliday, and and uh, you know proceeded proceeded on. I'm you know uh, it's it's very discouraging to to hear. Uh, that you know your experience in Boston was was like that. I'm wondering was did that have anything to do with the classical world accepting you, or was that just outside of just oh the, that it was just, just outside with with yeah. the people, you know? Yeah, and just on, yeah. yeah, I didn't I didn't feel that way at the school at all. Um, oh, good. You know, Berkeley was right down the street, so I had friends there. And yeah. my first year roommate was pianist Rachel Z. <laughs> so, uh, and, and she had been at Berkeley, so she would, you know, so I met a lot of people there. And of course I had Carla, but now it was just in the city, just dealing with that and not really having yeah. a, um, uh, yeah, I, I think it would have been hip if the city had been different, my experience in the city. But when I came back to Oakland U, they had an actual campus. Like it was just the school enclosed. And I probably, you know, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to deal with uh, Boston. Maybe I wasn't at the age. I don't know. I don't know. But my oldest brother went to Harvard and he hated Boston too. So Uh, I don't know. Interesting. So, uh, but I'm curious, like, was there any particular thing or that making that shift from pursuing a classical career to really deciding to turn your back somewhat on that and make a decision to, to, you know, move towards, towards jazz? Was that especially when your parents were not really, you know, as supportive maybe as they could have been about that decision? So that must have been something again that you felt was your path. How how, how did that happen? Was there uh, a particular artist, a, a record that just turned your head around, an experience, anything? Yeah, actually, well, you know, I knew I wanted to in high school. The same friend, Carla Cook, we we she was a vocal. She is a vocalist. Uh, she played bass in high school, upright bass as well in the orchestra. But in Spanish class, we sat next to each other, and she would always talk about, you know, these jazz musicians, um, Miles, Eddie Jefferson, Servan. And she brought me three, my first three records, Jean-Luc Ponty, uh, Stefan Grappelli, and Noel Pointer. So that's, you know, hearing, but I already had experience because of the Suzuki method and the way, you know, some of the, the games that my, my first teacher played with us. I was not afraid of being off the paper. And of course, because you learn by ear first, my, you know, that was my reading was never, <laughs> that's never my uh, forte. So sight reading, I would, you know, but um, I like the freedom that I heard in that music, the freedom to be able to be, to play, to have your own yeah. voice in the music. Yeah. That's, I think, what really turned my head. and. You know, when I was younger, my teacher, who was white, said to my mom, she she told my mother I was going to have a really difficult time because getting into an orchestra because I was black. And so my mother was of the mind that where there's a will, there's a way. So I got a lot of that persistence from her. Um, 
and I used to, but I used to go to the symphony here, the Detroit Symphony at uh, Hall uh, Ford Auditorium when I was a kid, and I sit up in the balcony and look. And I never saw myself as being in the orchestra. I saw myself as the soloist with the orchestra. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> <laughs> When I, you know, when I was at NEC and I was in the orchestra, I think what kind of helped me uh, make the decision, I remember the conductor, he'd give the downbeat, and I'd come in and no one oh else would come in gosh. until about a few seconds what is later, that? and I'd be like, oh my God, it drives me what nuts. What is that? So, <laughs> I couldn't figure it out, and so I went to him and I said, <laughs> why? <laughs> What's wrong? What am I not getting? You know? And he told me every orchestra has their own timing. And so, you know, when I've done jazz gigs, even with a, a, a rhythm section, I remember once um, we did a thing with Sir Simon Rattle and it was uh, Peter Washington, Louis Nash, and um, was, it, was it Jerry on piano? I think, yeah, Jerry Allen. And... I remember uh, there was a part and and the rhythm section kept looking at the conductor and I was like, no, in this part, don't watch him. And even Sir Simon said, yeah, don't watch me here. It's, it's, I always liken it to following someone in a car and they drive really fast and you're trying to keep up and they're already, you know, it's just the weird. So weird. And, but you know, the funny thing is I discovered that if I, I played on a few f uh, soundtrack film score uh, sessions and you'll have mm -hmm. usually a lot of times the composer will be conducting and they're not classical, you know, mm -hmm. symphonic conductors. They're just composers who are trying to give people cues and it's completely utilitarian and they're not trying to look pretty. Mm -hmm. And they come <laughs> right on and the beat is where you expect it. And they're showing it with their body and they're like, you know, here's where here's where it is. And it's. It's totally intuitive. And it's not like that weird, here's the upbeat, and then everybody, you know, the downbeat, first of all, in the orchestra is up and instead of down. And uh, and then everybody comes in. It's like it's like when you have the uh, econo mode on your car and you step on the gas and then it's like, wait, oh, there it goes. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It, I like that one. Exactly. Oh, no. my God. I can't, I couldn't even get it. It's like, how do you figure that out? It's just, so just funny. a weird thing for me. So that like, helps. not for me. This is clearly not. Right. Yeah, I hear you on that. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, you were talking about school or something. You were tap dancing around something uh, about classical or jazz at NEC. And it reminded me that you are a tap dancer as well. I was a tap dancer. <laughs> I took tap and ballet as a as a child for many years, and both my brothers they uh, took tap, and they both took piano and one trumpet clarinet. So music, music and education were the two important items in my in my household. My grandmother That's graduated nice. from college in 1915 with a degree in piano pedagogy. Yeah. 
No kidding. Yeah, I have her degree. Wow, how unusual is that? Yeah, and it's for a woman and a black woman. Yeah. And a black woman in 1915. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Very, so you come from a long line of uh, iconoclastic yeah. musicians <laughs> doing your own thing. Yep. Very cool. You know, and you can, it, it's so interesting when I do these interviews and I get to, pe- to meet the people who I've been listening to for years. And that's exactly what I would expect because that's what I hear in your music. It's very <laughs> Thank direct. <you>. It's, <laughs> Thank it's you. honest. And it's like, th- that's me, you know? And, and I just love that. Yeah, no, it's so wonderful. You know, it's, 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 it's honest. And that's, uh, I think the, probably the, the highest compliment I can give to any musician. Thank you. you. Yeah, it is. It is. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think, and you know, I'm, I'm, I think we, when we mature, I guess speak for myself, at least you, you feel you can get there in the beginning as a youngster, and I say to my students too, we want to play everything and we yep. want to wow the crowd yep. and you know, I could do this and I could do that. It's like, let me give you all I got right now here. Yep. And you know, I, and I try to tell, okay, you don't have to give me everything, calm down. But I, I realize that's just a part of our, our, our maturity, our maturing yes. as we mature as musicians, just as we do people and, and what we experience in life adds to that. Yes. And I think as as we mature, as we uh, you know get to know ourselves better, we're less uh, we're less occupied with pleasing everybody else, you know. Yeah, I think there's certain um, there's certain experiences too that happen in our lives that help us to at least for me help me to know what's what's important and what's not. Yes and and why we do what we do and that all of us all of us are leaving here one day you know um so i just i try to hold on to that you know uh this is a a wonderful uh, moment to speak about the care you gave to your mom before she passed and and how that became uh such an important this hospice care became such an important part of your life and again, I think this is some of the hardest work that anyone can do and some of the most generous work that that anyone can do in this world. I often think of, you know, my career as like it's so self-serving. I'm just doing what I love to do. What good am I doing to anybody? I'm not feeding anybody. I'm not passing laws that are going to help anybody. That's not true. I, 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 you know, I, I've discovered that it's not, not true. true. Uh, and I'd like you to talk about that. The, the power of art. And then I want you to talk about, if you don't mind, about hospice and the kind of care and, and what that means to you. Yeah, I mean, the fact that when you go on stage it's and you're playing, as much as you may be enjoying it, others are, being, are enjoying it and being healed. And we never know who we're touching, how we're touching. You know, sometimes you may have someone come up to you and say, you know what, that really moved me or I'm going through this and this helped me. But there are many times that we do that we don't know. We just have to trust. Um, and I think if we go on with, if, if, if we go on, when we step on stage, if we respect the music and each other, uh, I think we can rest assured that we're, we're, we're putting some good out there 
in, into the world. Um, I um yeah when my when my mom was 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 making her transition, I didn't even know that you know she was. I just thought she'd been dealing with cancer for a couple of. T- this was like her third bout. But then I saw that, yeah. it, you know, it was pretty serious. So I, I canceled a bunch of gigs and went home to be with her. And I remember uh, basically kind of just living in the hospital. And my oldest brother was like, well, you can't just you can't just sit there and wait for her to die. Like, you can't just. And I was like, actually, I can't. <laughs> you know, I've got that kind of job. Thank goodness I can be here. So, uh and I felt like it was a gift to be able to be there with her. I was very close to my mother uh, to be there to help her and to be her advocate. You know, everyone, when you're in a hospital, you better have somebody there to yeah. be your advocate and watch out for you. Good yeah, Lord, no. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, just to help take care of her. It was, to me, that's a gift. That's the biggest gift. And it's hard emotionally, as it difficult as it was, it just put me in touch with some what some reality like it it things became very clear to me uh what was important um and and it almost it it was almost like i had this spiritual awakening dealing with her because sometimes i go home and i get on the computer and back then it was the iaje strings remember I don't get the internet <laughs> so yes. I you know one time I remember going home and looking on there and someone was raking me across the coals about how I didn't deserve this and I was only playing with these people oh because gosh. of this and da 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 and usually like I see stuff like that and I just immediately get so angry but I saw it and I remember there was this long chain and I just said you know my mom said to me once, you know, if you spent half as much time dealing with what you want instead of looking at what other people have, you might be somewhere, you know, you might get that. And the, and I remember the person saying, well, why do you care what I think if I were Regina Carter? I wouldn't care what I what you, it's something like that. And I said, well, you know, it's not that I care, it's that you don't have your facts straight. I care the fact that about the fact that you don't you don't even know what you're talking about. So I don't know. It was just yeah. interesting um, then. And I said, you know, I want to be able to hold on to that, not being angry and just being able to be graceful about something and knowing that that like, what's that have to do with me? Like the real thing thing is my yeah. mother's my mother's dying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. it's it's yeah. once you get past or once you have lived with a situation like that for so long, with her being gone, we it's easy to get back into our old ways and lose that. You know, I wanted to. Um, but doing that was so special. And I think seeing so many older people, elderly people in the hospital that didn't have visitors or anyone coming to see them, no one should have to leave here alone. No one should be sick alone. Um, and the sad truth yeah. is there are a lot of people that make you know that don't have family or friends to come and visit so that touched me in such a in such a profound way that i i i trained to be a hospice volunteer and so i did that for many years um in fact my first patient her name she and my mom shared the same name and she was a lot like my mother Grace. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just a funny old Italian woman, very beautiful. Um, and then, and I had a couple of maybe three patients for a couple of years, and then I was started to tour a lot more, and so I couldn't do it. And recently, during right after the pandemic, I trained to be um, a, a, an end of life doula. Wow! And so, that's really powerful. Wow. And you know, when you when you see that, and I think for me it was too, it was just because I'm so. Like I'm so curious and a little obsessed about death, like what happens to us. Yeah. And it's almost I feel like my way of trying to get wow. close close Holy to that cow. and check it out. That is so <laughs> heavy, Regina. I didn't even know where to start with that. Wow. <laughs> but you know, you see you witness that stuff and then you go on stage to play, you know, like I know this ain't none of this coming from me. It's coming through me. Yeah. You know. Wow. Oh my goodness. I'm tearing up just thinking about it. <laughs> that is just so profound. It's so. It's experience, right? You know, you you try to as an educator, you go, how can I teach this, or at least teach students how to look for it, you know? But you can't, you know. It's just either, you know, for you to to be drawn to that, to be drawn to that experience to the point where you want to train yourself to be an end of life doula and to and to be doing hospice work in the first place. There's something there's something calling you to that, just like there's something calling you towards jazz, I'm guessing. And I, I'm not trying to, you know, psychoanalyze or anything like that. But I just to me, I, I mean, I, it's it is it's your nature. You know that that attracted you to this, your curiosity, your your spiritualism that that was that was spoken to, and that's something that you can't teach. It's our experiences. You, know? you can't teach somebody how to go about having meaningful experiences. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no. go out and do something meaningful. You know, I know, but I think you can. I think you can introduce people to certain experiences. Like I. When I was uh, in Detroit uh, at OU, we'd have master classes or camp with sometimes with trumpeter Marcus Belgrave and so many other musicians on the scene. And Marcus would always take us to a nursing home to play. He always went to nursing homes, the hospitals. So he'd take all those young musicians with him. And I think there's something, maybe he planted that seed. I, I don't know. Interesting. Um, Interesting. But even if you don't get it, when I... I think it's there like you we plant seeds and just you know like in a garden some things are gonna bloom some things are never gonna bloom you know but we don't know when we're planting seeds with our students um you know i i i i believe in that we can't yeah they aren't going to understand the importance or what they might get out of it but it's it's like anything, you know, when you, we're learning and then you might not understand something right then and it could be five years later and you're like, oh, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Oh, it's happened to me so many times. And, you know, I think there's something, 
because music is such uh, an indefinable art and you know there are the notes there are the techniques but that's not what music really is you know no, that's not what anybody no. who listens no. to it cares about right um, but there's some there's something about uh, having meaningful experiences that is uh, can be translated through music to other people and I think you know it could be standing and looking at the ocean looking at a sunset or something uh, you know nature can provide some of those things that make you go wow there, the world is a lot bigger than me yeah. and my C major scale, you know? <laughs> and you know what? You saying that, thank you for saying that, because oh, <laughs> so I need to hear that. You just taught that to myself. me and to everybody else, you know? <laughs> well, because no, I get so hung up on the way I learn or, or how, yeah, the process for my learning that I don't necessarily learn like others i can get really hung up on that so you saying that was a reminder to me that really <laughs> and you know what you know maybe because of that you know you your awareness is different your awareness of that spirituality of all of the things that are make your music so so deep um you're you know you're bringing that to people when we when we listen to you and we when we hear you speaking about things like this other musicians uh you know it's incredibly influential to hear regina carter talking about how you know you took time off touring to help people dying um that's where your values are and that's what ends up in your music that's what ends up coming through your fingers um, that's 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 really meaningful to a lot of young string players who are all hung up about modes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I know. And I just laughed because it's like, <laughs> right? yeah, it's just sometimes you have to realize that, you know. Man, there's more to it than. Hey, yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> more to it for sure. Yeah. Um, and and speaking of the more two, and I'm getting to, to, to you know a, a little bit more to the to the string playing stuff. I'm kind of curious how experiences like um, Suzuki with the playing by ear, how that builds your ability to improvise and to be able to be free on stage and to trust your ear in a way that a lot of classical musicians don't. Uh, and the, the tap dancing and the physicalization uh, that that brings, the full body experience that happens when you're incorporating rhythm in your body. This is a big part of what I teach, this whole groove stuff, the strum bowing. And, you know, I'm really focused on teaching uh, often classical players how to get in touch with that as a dancer as a suzuki person you were brought up with that and of course part of just your natural talent of but you know maybe you can um enlighten us a little bit about the importance of that for classical players to get that integration of of rhythm in your feet not just in your hands well in your body i i feel like it's important for all musicians um you know, it's interesting. I love to dance, all kinds of dance, <laughs> salsa dance, African dance, whatever. Um, and I, I learned a lot of jazz tunes, uh, tap dancing when I was a kid. So like, uh, 
Chattanooga Choo Choo and some of the other ja- old jazz standards. I learned them in tap dance school. Who knew I'd like, I was like, oh, I know this. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's, it, I remember once taking an African dance class and I forget which, which style of dance it was. And she, the teacher had us doing a move and I tried my darndest to like, like move that part of my body to even figure out where it was, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> I, how to move that. Yeah. And she looked at me and she laughed so hard. We all did. We, I, because, and, and I, and she said a lot of Westerners are not in touch with certain parts of our bodies. And then I realized I watched sometimes ballet dancers come into the class and they're not in touch because their whole dance is about something else. They're not in touch with certain. So I think every musician should take a dance class. And I always tell my students, look, you guys need to, in fact, I brought in um, tap dancers. And when I was artistic director of the Jerry Allen jazz camp, we had tap dance class every day that we were there. you know, because you have to feel, got to feel the music and you have to be able to, to, to be your own drummer Yes. and, and feel the pulse and feel the beat and to learn, uh, how to groove, how to, you know, how to, what is the groove depending on the music, each, each genre of music has its own groove and understanding that. And so you know, watching my students when I see the way they move and I say, okay, this is the way you're playing, you know, and just trying to get them to really loosen up and it's, um, that's a whole thing, you know, and being relaxed enough um, to do it. And I just tell them, because they get so shy. I'm like, look, we're a team in here. Yep. No one is coming in here and watching us. Yep. So just don't. And I, I embarrass myself in front of them. I just do stuff, you know, and just so they can relax about it. But I think it's every musician needs to take a dance class. I think it should be part of the curriculum in these schools, to tell you yeah. the truth. Yeah. You know, I think if classical musicians knew how to do the old dances, or at least knew what they really looked like, like a courant, a beret, <laughs> You know, right. like a saraband, a gavotte. What are those things? You know, because, you know, you can tell, you know, when somebody's dancing to salsa, it's different when they're dancing to, you know, funk, um, right. you know, or hip hop. They all have a different right. way of moving the body. And, and that's, it's so, it's like music is dance that makes sound, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we weren't moving and- that way, you wouldn't, it wouldn't sound that way. Right, and and to understand where the beat gets placed, you know, yeah. like what does the pocket mean in this style? Where's the pocket? Where's do you place it in the middle of the beat? Just trying to explain all of that and to yeah. get string players to to feel that, like that. That's what makes the music breathe, because it you know it, it tugs on your 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 what is this your solar plex or whatever they call it but yeah when you feel someone mm-hmm. like stretching that beat back and then coming back up is you're creating yeah. you're creating tension. yeah yeah it's rhythmic tension mm-hmm. you can just watch somebody move if they're a good dancer and you can tell what the where the beat is what it feels like right you know um yeah. it can't just be in your hands you right know? it just doesn't work that way yeah no <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I sometimes I put on, you know, I just it's interesting because some people just don't react to certain Yes. And I think if you don't have a reaction or a connection to a certain music, sometimes I look at people and I was like, How could you not feel that? How can you not? But that's yeah. what makes us all different and individual. But exactly. You know, sometimes exactly. I bring in um you know the field howlers or or some of the gospel even some of the gospel choirs or those the it's and how and, and maybe because it's i don't know why i feel this thing and i just get excited sometimes my students will just i'm like doesn't that move you <laughs> no so wow I, so I have if you can <laughs> If you can listen to a gospel band and not feel, especially when it's like, mod, you know, like the more upbeat yeah. stuff, it starts modulating mm -hmm. up and up and up. It's like, man, if, if that doesn't just get you on your feet, nothing will. You yeah, know? I don't. But, you know, I had to realize that, you know, just some cultures, that's not their, yeah. it's not their thing. And so that, no, and we have to respect exactly. that, you know. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, a, a, an interesting thing that I, I've noticed uh, a sort of a parallel between classical music and ballet mm -hmm. and popular music and popular dance, not necessarily modern dance, right. like, mm -hmm. but just like, you know, street dance and just the way right. people dance in clubs and mm -hmm. stuff. Um, classical music, classical string playing, I should, I should say, is very melodic based, right? Mm -hmm. And at first, you know, I was telling people, oh, you got to move. And then I would I would realize that people were moving in the sort of the classical way. Like, you know, you'll see a classical soloist moving like this, and, right. you know, and, and being expressive. Right. Uh, and that's their job. When you're playing a melody, right. that's your job. You're not in the rhythm section. You're the singer, you know, kind of, you know, this is a little different function. And in ballet, you know, you can see um, dancers moving. And, and, and I've seen, I've worked with some ballet dancers who who seem to not have a sense of rhythm. You know, it's all about mm -hmm. line, it's all about elegance and grace and all of the incredibly difficult uh, things that ballet dancers do, but it's not really about rhythm. Just the way string players can be all about line and melody and not have anything to do with rhythm. Uh, and then you see like the rhythm guitar player doing this and somebody in a club doing this and you're, you know, you realize that this rhythm function is very different from this melody function and the classical world has really focused on melody and uh, technique, you know, pyrotechnics and virtuosity uh, and, and they don't really talk about rhythm and that's partly why I do what I do but to try to bridge that gap and try to bring people back to the rhythm that is in classical music it may just not be in the first violin part maybe in the viola part <laughs> i i think i would say just how they think of rhythm is just very different than we do because they have to yes you know the rhythms on the it's it's not a when we say rhythm it's a thing we're talking about something in here yeah when class i think when classical european classical musicians say rhythm it's something that's on a paper yes and it's, you know, it was interesting once I did a, a workshop with some string students and I took something, a, a piece of music, and I cut the title off of it and I put it up and I said, okay, someone play this for me. And it was just, and then someone else play. I said, well, how do you know, 
how to play that? How do you know how to approach it? You don't know what it is. You don't know what the tune is. You just see some dots on the piece of paper and you're coming to it with your your experience of what you think. So, you know, that's, that's a- Interesting. I said, it could be those same dots on the piece of paper. And if I tell you, okay, it's this style or it's this or it's that, the notes are the same, but you have to understand how to interpret those notes. Uh, you know, and so yeah. I think the what we were talking about earlier too, with the whole thing with the conductor doing the downbeat in the orchestra, just like a couple seconds, with my string players, and sometimes I'll have them do it say one, two, one, two, three, four, and I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> put the bow on the string, don't take it off leave it there when I can when I say one move your arm let's start moving (laughs) and then in between I have to tell them don't don't take the bow off the string I said act like you cannot come off those strings interesting leave it there dig in a little bit and I said and only use like two inches if that of bow that's all and and then when I tell them don't do vibrato I might as well say don't breathe (laughs) you know and I realize that's you know and you think about in any little kid that is starting to learn violin was the first thing they want to learn how to do, vibrato. And they're, how do you do that thing with your? And I'm like, oh my god. And that's so overused oh. because it wasn't meant to be a thing that was used all the time. No, um, it wasn't meant to be used really but at yeah, all back in the old days in Bach. Yeah. Right, right, right. Trying to get them leave the string on there and dig in a little bit into not have that very it's a very different approach to playing you know that they have to get that feel even that doing that yeah yeah i'm glad you brought up vibrato because it's very interesting you know i was listening through a lot of your music lately uh before this um interview and and there are places where you're playing without any vibrato like a horn player you know and there are other places where you're using it very intentionally and places where you're um, I forget um, which which tune it was now, but where in part of the song I was you were using it in a in a very intentional way, and then you were sliding and holding without vibrato, and it was like very very intentional. Uh, and I'm just curious how you make those choices, and are they just they're just um, whatever feels. You know, like. it's just at this point <clears throat> using vibrato in the way I use it is just something that I don't have to think about necessarily you know uh yeah but yeah listening to vocalists a lot of vocalists i would listen to how they used it and also um ben webster and uh um arthur blythe those two the way they use the vibrato i love and it's just and i you know a lot of it if you're if you sing something or if you even hold a note you realize how you, and what the word is. Like if I'm playing a ballad, what are the words? First of all, any tune, gotta know the yeah. words. <laughs> so yeah. learn the lyric. Learn, yeah. learn the lyric. And you know, yeah. then you kind of, how you're gonna, how you're gonna phrase and mm-hmm. why. Like, I, and I tell my students, okay, yeah. how would right. you sing this? How would you say, it's, a, it's, po- it's poetry. How would you say this? So that helps, I think, to, uh, dictate how you're going to use or when you're going to use or if you're going to use vibrato or if you're going to slide into something that makes it you're 
you're it's like pulling it pulling your audience towards you when you slide slowly slide into a note like is she gonna make it <laughs> there it is it's another it's another it's tension it's tension it's all tension exactly exactly and and you know I found myself that it comes from singers primarily and that idea of you know in opera where there's always the vibrato from the beginning of the note just like you know, start your vibrato yeah. before your bow even hits the string. You know, that's what I was taught. Um, yeah. But you listen to Whitney Houston, and she did not use vibrato that way. She hit a note, mm -hmm. and then the vibrato was what released that tension. Right, right. Very different use. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's so funny. I remember the, uh, when I was in, uh, when I sometimes in church, <laughs> and when I was a kid. And my mom, we went, we sang, we sang, um, we went to a quiet church. So it was like, <laughs> quiet church. <laughs> like, I remember the one time someone visiting said, amen, after something and the whole church turned around and looked at oh my like, goodness. what? It was like one of those, you know, but <laughs> you know, you hear the older, the older women, the older we get, the more our voices vibrate naturally, you yeah. know, just, um, and hearing that and sometimes elbowing my mother not to sing <laughs> in church. But, um, and another thing is I tell my students, um, I said, jazz is not polite, you know. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you just, for that. <laughs> it's like, you've been working all week. I said, you think about it, you're so ready to be out of school and this, this is your chance. You're going to the club and you're just going to release it. Yep. You're not going to say, you know, you're yep. not going to be in there and say, oh, my gosh, I'm yes. so tired. Thank God this semester is over. You know? yeah, so no, play it yeah. like that. You know, not, oh, thank goodness. How do you, you know, and and a lot of times they have to give themselves, they have to be given permission and give themselves permission yeah. to feel, to go in there and feel those feelings. Yes. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, you know, I tell my students there's different rules for different schools. You know, mm -hmm. um, just technically and stuff, the way you use your technique in classical, different. And just the whole what you're going for in jazz is different than what you're going for often in classical music. It's just a different, it's like a set, it's a second language if you're a string player. It is. It is. And a lot of people think, well, if I if I do that, it's going to hurt my classical playing. My Mozart will never be the same. Now I'll be like, be too coarse or too rough or whatever. It's like, <laughs> did, if you learn some Spanish, you're an English, you know, right, speaker. Right. You learn some Spanish. Did you forget how to speak English? No. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. There's always that misconception. of. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we know where that comes from. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's just... comes from comes from the fact that as classical players, we think we spend so many hours of conditioned, focused work to do a very specific kind of thing, just like ballet dancers do, that your body can't do anything else. You know, it feels so wrong to use your bow in a different way. It feels so wrong, especially vibrato is such a muscle memory. You just can't conceive of of how you could do it otherwise. So just listen to Miles Davis play Blue and Green. Tell yeah. me when you hear hear vibrato in that tune. There's maybe like one half a second of vibrato in the whole his whole performance. Did that sound ugly? Did it sound coarse? Did it sound vulgar? No, it's the most intimate, 
personal, touching performance, not a bit of vibrato. No, but I think, you know, I think a lot of it with classical string players comes from some teachers, not all. But even I have some students that say they can't tell their teachers that they're even taking a jazz class. Yeah. So I'm just like, this is 2023. Are you kidding me? Exactly. So, and that, so I think, I, you know, I think when I see teachers, um, there's a, there's a, there's a professor at Manhattan School of Music. One of my students really is into jazz and I'm so thankful that her teacher, she was afraid to tell her teacher and her teacher saw this other, she had two violins and, and she was, asked her about it and she was she goes I love jazz I listen to jazz when I'm chilling out and I'm like you never know so her teacher encouraged her to you know to do more and I you know I tell my students you got to diversify because there are a million people going for those chairs in an orchestra and people stay in those chairs till they like drop dead out of it and so what can you do besides that can you, if someone calls you to do a recording session that's hip hop or calls you to do, you know, a funk gig or calls you to do this, can you do that? You know, are you, have you had experience yeah. in those styles to be able to do that? And I say, you got to eat, you got to pay the rent. Yep. <laughs> you know? so. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's how probably both of us were able to support ourselves for the early days, man. Just never say no to a gig. And that's right use your ear <laughs> just use your ear right yeah and thank god for the suzuki method for training that ear for going with that because yes. you know yeah. when all else fails the ears will help you out the ears and the melody yeah yeah <laughs> uh, the other thing you know it's important to diversify so that you can get work and and good to have other abilities but i have never seen and I've never seen it where somebody learning jazz and learning how to play funk and learning other styles Latin music whatever that that didn't bring something really important back to their classical playing exactly exactly an invigorated sense of rhythm or an -hmm. understanding of a a different way of feeling a line or something Mm -hmm. it can't but help uh, classical classical playing because all of those classical, uh, all of the classical music that we know and love was all written in the time and style of its day. It was not hundred year old music like it is now. Right. right. It was contemporary. When Mozart was writing it, it was the style. When Tchaikovsky, that was the style. Uh, and they were writing really good versions of popular styles, you know, popular mm-hmm. music. Uh, and that's what they were feeling. You know, they weren't alienated from from their popular style. So right. anyway, there's a tons of rhythm. There's tons of of a lot of what people think is classical is this sort of uh, refined, a uh, little bit mm-hmm. hoity-toity or whatever. I'm, I'm generalizing and, and in a right. negative way uh, intentionally. But those negative views of classical music w- was not what they were writing. That was not what Tchaikovsky was writing. He was writing from yeah. his gut. He was writing just as much from his gut as uh, anybody who's writing hip hop is today. Yeah, and those same attitudes are what what's turning away younger audiences. That's right. So, exactly you know. right. That's that's kind of my point. Is that it was it came, it was real. It was real to them, mm-hmm. and it wasn't something you know that you had to be super quiet about and whatever. Anyway, preaching to the choir, <laughs> right. but. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, there are classical listeners of this podcast. And uh, while I usually um, make a point in almost every podcast of, of declaring my love for classical music, it was my first love in music. Uh, it's what mm-hmm. I, the only reason I'm a violinist is because of the Sibelius Violin Concerto, because I heard it when I was like five years old and was like, that, <laughs> that. It's not that I don't love it. What I don't love is that we put it on such a pedestal that it's not, it's yeah. not ours anymore. We can't, it has to be something that we can internalize and make us in 2023 through our eyes, or it's not real anymore. And that's my fear yeah. is that it becomes a museum piece and not real. Well, Right. And I, I also think putting it on a pedestal also says that it's it's the music, it's the culture, yes. it's the and yes. it's it's just one of many, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so every, much. Every every culture has every culture has its classical music. That's all. <laughs> That's an interesting take. Very you know, interesting. You know, when when parents take. say do you think my son, he should have to play classical music first? And I was like, who, who's, who's classical? Yeah. Classical Indian music. Yeah. Interesting <laughs> take. So. Yep. Well, as good a, a place as any to segue into our, not my gig segment. <laughs> do not fear. Do not fear. Regina Carter, you are a MacArthur genius. Grant ah, Award winner, <laughs> fellow. So we're going to see how much you know about the song MacArthur Park. Nothing. <laughs> All right. I struck pay dirt. Excellent. Okay. This is going to be, this is pure improv then. This is okay. using your improv skills. Okay. <laughs> All right. So MacArthur Park was written and composed by Jimmy Webb, great songwriter, in summer and fall of 1967 as part of an intended cantata. The idea to write and compose a classically structured song with several movements that could be played on the radio came from a challenge by music producer Bones Howe, who hoped the song would be recorded by which American pop group who then chose not to record it? Was it A, The Association, B, The Turtles, or C, The Mamas and the Papas? I'm going to say C. Well, it's probably it was the association. It's association. It was the association. Uh, you know, association. There was one song that they had that I used to like, but I cannot remember even what it is. Uh, so, all right. Moving on. Moving Strike right along. Strike two. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. The song was recorded by which of these artists? Jesus. A. Donna Summer. B. Richard Harris. Or C, Waylon Jennings. I'm gonna say Donna Summer, <laughs> only because I like her. I know it. I'm striking out again. <laughs> she nope. She did record it. Oh my god. She ding, did ding, a ding, great ding, version ding, ding, ding. of it. Yes. <laughs> and what as a, did Richard Harris and as oh, did Richard three. Harris and Waylon Jennings. Okay. <laughs> we gotta have a we gotta have a gimme in there. But yes, she did for extra credit. Extra oh credit. Who recorded okay. the who recorded the original version? The first version. Is it one of those three? It is. Richard Harris. It's probably yes. Wayland. Okay. Oh, okay. Nope. You got it. You got Yay. it. <laughs> There's one more. There's <laughs> okay. one more. All right. Here you are for, for the uh, the tiebreaker here. 
Oh, you're ready one because you got two out of three. So you're a winner. <laughs> you are a winner. So the Donna Summer version reached what number on the Billboard charts? Was it number two, number one, or number 18? 18. She went all the way to number one with that. Get out of here. Three weeks, three weeks and number one. Wow. It's a great version. The okay, disco I, see, I'm gonna have to check it out now. <laughs> <laughs> Song reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 the week of November 11th, 1978, for three weeks, and earned Summer her first nomination for the Grammy Award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. Wow, called Donna Summer. So, Who there knew? you go, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> That was fun. <laughs> well, good. See, not so bad. Not so bad. And you won. You went. You went home a winner. So do I get? Not that you win any. Do I get a free set? Of, do I get a free set of steak knives? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say a free set of strings. Yeah, right. I know. That would be. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, all you get are bragging rights, and they are not worth all that much. So. <laughs> Regina, uh, thank you so much for taking you. this time. Uh, this what an is, honor for me oh, to, to finally meet you and Same here. say some of the wonderful thoughts that I've had about you for so many years to your to you personally. Oh, um, I appreciate it. And thank you for inviting me to be on your, your show. I really appreciate oh, it. Uh, so. Of course. You have been such a, a huge influence to a whole generation of young players, string players, especially young female string players, and especially young black players. So okay. your contribution, I cannot overstate, uh, and what an honor to, to have you here Thank on this you. podcast. Thank you. Well, the honor is mine. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank okay. you, Regina. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you dug what we're talking about and you want to dig in deeper, Please check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group where I post about each of my guests and where you can leave your comments and opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot and groove on. Mm -hmm.